Daily DVR is sponsored by our presenting sponsor, Cufflinks.com, the men's accessories marketplace. Cufflinks.com aims to drive men to one place where they can find all the accessories they could want to elevate their look each day. Go to Cufflinks.com slash DVR today. Use code DVR20 and save 20% off your order. No minimum. Whether it's Star Wars, Marvel, DC, Disney, all that great stuff, or the sports stuff, NCAA, NBA, NFL, or, of course, the classic wearable art, the amazing high-quality Hook and Albert Oxen Bull, and, of course, their own Cufflinks.com brand. We encourage you to elevate your look when you get dressed in the morning. It helps to make you feel more confident and create your individual style. Go to Cufflinks.com DVR today. Welcome back to Podcast Winterfell. It's been a while, but we're back today with a very special episode. Ken and I are going to be talking about the Game of Thrones final season and finale one year later. Remember, you can go to DVRpodcast.com and find out more about us. We're doing a lot of other podcasts. Mindhunter, Ken and I did Veronica Mars, Watchmen, Westworld, so much other stuff, but today we're here to talk Game of Thrones, and before we get into it, I want to introduce the man himself. It's always a pleasure to speak to him. He's here to enlighten us and fill our hearts with joy. It's Ken. What's up, buddy? <laughs> wow, cool. that's quite the intro. Thank you so much. <laughs> that's a lot of pressure to put on me. <laughs> I live up to it. Um, uh, well, thank you. Um, it's great to be here. Um, I'm excited, of course, to talk about. I'm always excited to talk about Game of Thrones. I'm particularly excited to talk to you about the final season, the final episode. It's been about 14 months, right, since yes. the final about since the final ep aired, um, and you know, there's there's still a lot to say about the story, about the characters, about what it all means. Um, so I'm excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, man, this is going to be great. Yeah, it's been – it was May 19th. We were just looking it up. May 19th, 2019 was when the final episode aired. Yeah. And I guess a couple months ago in May, we're going through the whole COVID thing as we still are and were then – and I think even then I was like, I need some more time to process it. Yeah. Uh, so I need an extra two couple months passed. But I always wanted to come back here with you to Winterfell and discuss it and just kind of, you know, today we'll talk about the show itself, the fan reaction, how we're feeling a year later. I know yeah. I had the opportunity. I watched I didn't wa rewatch the entire season. I rewatched the entire final episode. And I also went back and, and just kind of pick and chose certain moments yeah. and segments, which ended up turning into a little bit longer because it's hard to stop watching it. But I wanted to kind of just pick things up. Yeah. And um, I don't know. I was, uh, was kind of hit with a flood of different emotions and thoughts. But what did, did you have a chance to do any rewatching? I did. I actually watched the entire final season nice. um, in two days. 
um, kind of split it up. And um, it, I had, um, you know, when you're watching it week to week, um, you're processing really is what you're really doing. First and foremost, I think, is you're processing what you're getting from the screen, especially something momentous like a show's final season. Um, a year, 14 months later, when I was rewatching it a few days ago, I had already processed everything and I already knew what was going to happen. So this was a much more emotional experience for me, both negative, positive, everything in between, just emotional experience for me to watch it again. Um, and, uh, yeah, so it was great. It was really great to watch it again. Yeah. I enjoyed it. Um, do you want to, you had a little bit of in your notes here to kind of talk about how we, do you want to talk a little bit about our journeys again to kind of reframe it? Yeah. I feel like, I mean, I feel like we both probably told this story multiple times over multiple podcasts, but um, let's spend a few minutes and just talk about your and I's personal histories with Game of Thrones, both the show and possibly the books or just the material in general. Um, I did not – I was not aware of Game of Thrones as as a literary – as literary material before the show came out. Um, I have a history of being not that big of a fan actually of high high fantasy which I know a lot of people would be like, what? Uh, but actually, I'm not. I'm not a huge fan of high fantasy, generally speaking. Um, so I'm not surprised that I was not aware of Game of Thrones as a series of books. Um, but the tagline for the TV show, when they were first advertising it, HBO is so canny. They were like, "What The, the Sopranos meets The Lord of the Rings. And even though I saw that for what it was, which is clever advertising. The, the notion of that tagline really intrigued me because I was a huge fan of The Sopranos and a pretty big fan of Lord of the Rings. So I'm like, what would a TV show that was a melding of The Sopranos meets The Lord of the Rings look like? And I was so intrigued that I watched the show. I watched the pilot. And I want to say, I don't know how you feel, but I want to say by the end of the cold open of the pilot, with the dudes from the Night's Watch and they're they're out in the woods and you know they come across the all the stuff and the White Walkers that whole sequence that old that uh, original cold open um, by the end of that cold open I was hooked and by the end of the first episode when Jamie Lannister pushes Bran Stark out a window I was really hooked I was like I would say I was addicted by the end of the pilot. I really wanted to see what was going to happen next in this crazy story. Um, and so then I went from there, like every drug addict, <laughs> I wanted more and more. <laughs> so by the end of the first season, before the end of the first season, I had already read the first book. So I was reading the book between episodes. Um, and then once the first season ended, I caught up. I read three more books. Oh, um, and then, and then, and then I kept up with the books as they were published up to the last one, which was published, I don't know, six or seven years ago now. So, um, as you know, I, you know, I became a podcaster in the sense of first becoming a, a guest on other people's podcasts, calling in to Matt, to, 
uh, uh, podcast Winterfell started calling into his Monday night episodes because um, I wanted to talk to other people about the show. Because when you love something that much, you want to talk to other people who love it too. That's how you and I met. Um, and then I started my own podcast a, a year or two later called Cripples, Bastards, and Broken Things. I did that for a few years. Um, and then I stopped podcasting um, for the most part. And then kind of just as as a watcher and a lover of Game of Thrones, I just sort of enjoyed the final seasons as they came out. as just a viewer an admirer of the story, the TV show. So that's kind of my basic history of the show. Like I, I loved it. I always loved it. I loved the final season. Did I have some problems with the final season? Absolutely. Did I think it was perfect? No, I didn't. Do I think any piece of art is perfect? No, I don't. Um, so I did have some issues with the final season, but for the most part, I love the whole thing. I have, I love the whole ride. Um, but part of the ride has been people like you and I, you know, connecting, becoming friends. Can all these years later, we're still friends. We're still talking about Game of Thrones. So part of that is, you know, I kind of include all that in the journey as well. What about you? All right, I love that story. By the way, um, well, you know, for me, this show is always connected to Lost. Because we started doing the podcasts, what, 12 years ago, and that's how Lost Mythos, that's how I met Heath and Matt and Donald and all so many other people. Um, and we had always been talking about, after Lost ended, what's going to be the next kind of show that's going to get people as interested as, you know, they are in Star Wars as a movie or the Marvel movies. What's going to be the genre thing, right? That's going to kind of connect us all. And I too, well, I shouldn't say I knew of Game of Thrones. As a reader, I had seen the books. I had actually picked one up before, but I didn't really know Game of Thrones. I didn't know the type of fandom that it had. I was not aware of that. And I think also this, when we think about it, one of the reasons why Game of Thrones, I think, became such a huge show is that it grew as the internet and fandom grew. And it was able to harness that on a week to week basis rather than people waiting, like I'm saying, for the next Marvel movie or Star Wars or whatever. So touching into that, I that was a part that I wasn't prepared for. Um, and I think is probably, as we look back a year later, is where most of my, I have truer, clean, I guess, cleaner feelings about the show itself than I do yeah. about the fandom because the fandom for me has been amazing highs, meeting people like yourself, getting to connect with people I already knew about it, uh, including family and friends, right? Yeah. Um, being able to share it, but also the lows of seeing that still today, if you go on Twitter, there are people who like still spend all day hating on Game of Thrones <laughs> like right. a year later. 
just today I went on for two minutes and somebody was like, look at what the stupid title, look at the description for this episode. Isn't this stupid? They messed up everything. And I'm like, my God, (laughs) really, you still complaining about it. But then I was like, well, it shows the love, right? Like, you you know, you you hate the thing you love. You hurt the one you love. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. uh, So, this my story of getting involved in Game of Thrones really is a community thing. We we I mean I've released the podcast before. You can hear the first episode right after uh, the first episode aired. Heath and I were talking about it, and I think it was Heath, Matt, and Donald and I we were all like, "Hey, what? Is, oh, did you guys catch that show? That was pretty cool, right?" And we just and none of us had read the books. Yeah, we just started talking about it. Then obviously Matt. Matt's interest became like tantamount to all of his other interests and he devoured the books and started the podcast. And the whole time I think, you know, I was, I loved the show from the beginning because I, what immediately hooked me was that I knew that this was a fantasy story. I had already done a little reading, so I knew there were dragons and crazy shit and all that stuff, right? But there was not – this wasn't in the show. Yeah. So I was like, "There, this is genius. They are really hooking me. I really appreciated that they started with the foundation of a family um, and a, a story of people that you could connect with before yeah. – they entered into mythology. So that's what really hooked me on Game of Thrones is it had that lost feeling to me, that feeling of disparate people really just looking for solace and love and companionship. And that was reflected in the um, fandom as well. So, you know, we just started podcasting about it and you picked up on that part and people who are listening know the story. Um, and that's just been a joy, but I think for me watching the, I just, I watched this episode, the finale last night and those clips. And I was just kind of thinking back on everything and I have really positive feelings towards game of Thrones. Um, I know that it's still very controversial. I still hear, hear people say, well, I don't know if I could recommend game of thrones because you know the first four or five seasons are great but then it takes a big nosedive dan and dave ruined it and or or conversely george lied to them and said he'd have the books done and then when he didn't what were they supposed to do you know what i mean like you could take either side it doesn't matter the show changed but yeah what i saw was an amazing production with amazing acting, dedicated crew and cast. Yeah. Fantastic locations, cinematography, CGI, music. Yeah. Everything. And I was once again the the way I was when I watched the finale last season, when I watched all of season eight, blown away. And looking at it and saying, like, I just watched a movie. Yeah. Because if you separate the reaction to the art and you just look at the art itself, I feel like it's almost undeniable the quality of the art. 
itself. Definitely. Like, like everything you just said, the cinematography, the production design, the acting, the costuming, the music. Yeah. Um, That's it's one all- argument I'm never going to give up on, Ken. You know, like if somebody wants to tell me, hey, Dan and Dave did this or that, or they weren't true to this, or they, they should have hired other people, or they, even when it comes to diversity or females or whatever, I'm going to say, I can agree with you on all of that stuff. Right. But when you talk about like the Starbucks cup and try to use that as a metaphor for a production that didn't care and everybody, was just walking through it or, you know, you're, that's a, that's just something a dummy would say, because that, that just shows to me that you have absolutely no idea how hard it is to make what you saw. And you just don't understand how the sausage is made. Agreed. Like that's a silly thing to say. And I'll just echo what you said a little while ago, which is that, the greater the art, the greater and the more passionate the reactions to that art. So if there's a passionate negative reaction, that must mean that the art is truly great. Yeah. Otherwise, it wouldn't spot, inspire such passionate responses in either direction. Yeah, I agree. Because it's attention, right? Like, what is art without the observer? Correct. And Correct. that is, you know, I mean, in a sense... I am the type of person who thinks anything can be art. You know, I mean, what we're doing now is art. Our discussion is art, right? When we sweep the floor, it's art, whatever you're going to do. But when you're talking about something like this, a television show that's put on for people to still be angry about it shows, yeah, their dedication to the story, but also to their, their desire for it to be something um, that they can perceive as being worthy of their affection when they're, even though they still have that affection, <laughs> like it's a contradiction, right? right? Um, and that's why I don't, you know, I can't get angry at anybody or say like, oh, you're so stupid. You're, you know, people no, no. choose what they want to devote yeah. their time to, but I do think that I'm waiting because we tend to do this, especially in America. We love a comeback story. I'm waiting for like one of the, a couple of those people or that one tweet where someone's like, you know what? Game of Thrones season eight is fucking incredible. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> and then like oh, the next thing you know, there's like articles in Vulture and Variety and Hollywood Report, right? Like everyone realized that this was absolutely amazing. Like. Yeah. It it was different when, yeah. when the books ended and Dan and Dave didn't have that material, it became a different show. And everybody knows that we just have to accept it, right? Like they were hired to take books and turn them into mo- pretty faithfully, by the way, right? I mean, they changed things, but mostly for the convention of television Yes. what they were trying to do um they they were trying to do an adaptation when there was no adaptation left they had to make it up and i think yeah. that there is a case to be made 
that um, George wanted to retain some of the information for himself or he had not even come up with it. Like, how can he hold something back that he hasn't created yet? Right. So it's just an unfortunate situation. That's why I try not to blame anybody, you know, I mean, in each case. And I guess a little bit, I feel, you know, I think all of us like side with George a little bit more because he's from New Jersey. Um, (laughs) That makes him great. So, yeah. (laughs) Well, I mean, I totally agree with everything you said. I guess the one thing I would throw in is two of my favorite episodes of the run are in were put out during a time when they were off material. Um, yeah, dude, this like, is, I, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I'm getting, you're getting me excited. Can continue like battle of the bastards followed immediately by the wind winter, that combo of that one, two punch of those two episodes in two weeks. Those are two of my favorite episodes of the entire run. And neither one of them were adapted from one of George's books. Um, the Battle of the Bastards is amazing. Go back and rewatch it if you haven't in a while, folks. Um, everything about that episode is amazing. Uh, and then to follow that up with the Winds of Winter, that opening 20-minute sequence where Cersei finally takes revenge on all of her enemies, the musical score, the direction, the pacing, the performances, it's amazing. And I mean, and that's just the first 20 minutes of Winds of Winter. The entire episode of the Winds of Winter is amazing. Um, so, like, those are two of my favorite episodes, and both of those are off book. Yeah, dude. Ken, I'm telling you, yesterday – I'm sorry, I, I'm making noise, but I have this little footstool, and I keep on kicking it by accident. Um, okay. <laughs> in case the audience is wondering um, – uh, yesterday I was having a phone conversation and this person shall remain nameless because this, this is going to not be in their favor, but they were, we were talking about, I was saying, I'm doing this podcast and they were like, oh man, yeah, you know, damn man, you know, Dan and Dave, they're just, they're not George, man. I mean, come on. And then they went, this is exact what, exactly what this person said that that final battle when Arya took out the Night King, man, that Winterfell, that was nothing compared to Battle of the Bastards. There's no <laughs> way they could have come up with that. And I, and I said, no, that was after the books. They yeah. stopped. They came up with that. <laughs> and he was like, what? I was like, yeah, okay, but you know what I mean, man. It got worse. And I was like, see, you can't. That's just not like... There are, it was, you can only say, I think that it was different, right? Yeah. Like that's what I said throughout our entire coverage of season eight. This is right. different. If you go back and look at season one, the pacing, they knew yeah. what they had in front of them. They could lay it out little by little with, you know, hints and innuendo. But once they got past the books, I really think that there was not literally enough time for them to sit down, write all the books themselves. Like people are like, why didn't they plan it out? Why didn't they plan it out? They were making a television. They were making the biggest production in the history of television. They were. They did not have an extra three to five 
hundred years <laughs> to write all the rest of the however long it's going to take George to write the one. They right. had to write all of them. Yeah. And then sit down and plot it out properly as delicately as season one, two, and three were. They just yeah. couldn't do it. You know, it was not um it was not in their realm. And and that's why I think, you know, laying blame at either hand, I'd rather look at it and say it's actually pretty remarkable that it turned out as well as it did. Yeah. I agree with you. I mean, the fact that we ended up with a product that was amazing slash wonderful slash maybe problematic in certain ways, but, but was basically an entertaining, provocative, wonderful piece of art is, is amazing. The fact that they came up with that on the fly when they basically had two to three to four months between shooting schedules to sort of plan out the next season. Um, So, and, and you're absolutely right to point out that this was the biggest production in television. And one might say Hollywood history. Yeah. The way that they were filming in multiple countries at the same time with multiple units is amazing. Yeah. And people, you know, I don't really think that that is a thing that I have championed throughout this entire run of this show is that alone is something to be admired. And when you think about the job that Dan and Dave, HBO, I mean, even uh, George was a part of the production for a, a period of time and the, uh, the effect that, not that the hugeness popularity alone had on him, but just also the production in itself. Like when they're like, they're sh- when people say, Oh, they're shooting mission and pot, the next two mission impossibles back to back. Oh, in like five different countries, you're like, that's incredible. Tom Cruise is an amazing, you know, he's going to do a movie in space. But then when you say, well, Game of Thrones did that every season, okay, and they weren't shooting, you know, four hours of content. Yeah. They were shooting close to 12 all put together. And then when you edit it, so, and plus, guess what? They also had 10 times the amount of speaking roles and 100 times the amount of extras and the locations they were using were always expansive. Yeah, they were. You know, they weren't shooting in an office building. They were shooting in an entire, like, part of a city. It's just, and what they built when you look at it, it's just absolutely mind-boggling. And um, I was blown away. Like I said, I watched the finale and the pacing of it, what they were able to accomplish. You know, John doesn't kill Danny until a half hour, 33 minutes into, and it's an hour and 19 minutes. Yeah. Um, And they still had so much to do after that. I think it was... It was really beautiful. Uh, I mean, so many amazing shots, the dragon wings behind her and yeah. and having and been a bit more removed. And I will go back. I wanted I actually was been thinking about maybe rewatching the whole damn thing over this break, but we'll see what what grabs me. Maybe this podcast will propel me. Um 
I really felt it, man. I, I remember me saying things about this being rushed or not, ex, not explaining things. And when I really took the time to listen to the conversation that Tyrion and John have in the prison cell yeah. that Danny and John have just before he kills her. Yeah. Um, the little looks that they give each other, how they set it up. It was, I mean, it, it, it got me, man. There were tears, there were chills, there were emotions. And this was jumping into the finale, you know? Yeah, Absolutely. I thought it was beautiful. I agree with you. And I also um, thought that it. I, I, the one thing I thought when it was over, I was like, there's no way HBO is not making a sequel in the next five years. <laughs> <laughs> After the pandemic hit, right? And they need a hit for HBO Max. They're yeah. bringing these people back. Absolutely. Because it was so open-ended. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. For I sure. I forgot about that. Well, speaking of that, let's kind of hit a few major points through the last season, and then we can get to that finale that you just mentioned. And, of course, we're not going to talk about plot points, what happens. We're going to assume that you've all seen season eight of Game of Thrones. We're sort of going to frame this as what what do we think about these moments now? Um, so let's kind of start right with Danny's arrival in Winterfell at the beginning of season eight. I guess the thing that most interests me about this moment is that moment where the dragons first fly over Winterfell and Danny notices how afraid everyone is in the streets and how it causes a commotion of movement because of fear, not adulation, which is what she's be- grown accustomed to over in Essos for the last few years mm-hmm. leading up to her coming over. And I really thought that that was maybe the first important moment of this final season. And it's a big domino because it's going to lead directly to what you were just talking about a few minutes ago. Um, I kind of love that kind of idea also of unexpected reaction. Like the last thing I was thinking when I started season eight was that people were going to be afraid of her dragons. But then of course I, but then I thought about it for a second. I thought, of course people are going to be afraid of her dragons. Yeah. And this is also something that people had been telling her the entire show, right? Yeah. That you, if you come as a conqueror, people yeah. will see you as a conqueror. How long did they lay the foundation that's remember this was some some of the reason why they kind of held her back, right? You have to learn to be a ruler and you have to gain um the trust of the of the people in Westeros. You can't just dominate them. This season you're absolutely right. It ends with that and it starts with that. Yeah. Um and of course we remember from the first episode the kid like Bran running yeah, through the streets, how they show that from the perspective of the people, yeah. um, not from the per- and it's 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 interesting because I remember thinking early on, hmm, they're otherizing her right yeah. from the start, from the right. ca- from everything from the camera angles to the the where we're supposed to be taking this in. She is the other, yeah. And I thought that um, 
that you're right. They lay that down from the beginning and that's foundationally running through, uh, throughout the series, her, her battle between how much, how much, uh, might makes right. Well, and the, it's also the idea of being the outsider. You can root for the outsider and there's a lot to root for in a lot of outsider stories, but at the end of the day, being an outsider is a double-edged sword. It also causes – it can cause emotional scars for you. Um, it can cause psychological damage, being an outsider for such a long time and not having – the fr- not being able to notice other frames of references other than your own. Um, because you're so, uh, you're so concerned. If you're an outsider, you spend most of your time thinking about yourself and thinking about how to break in. Um, and, and that seemed apparent with the Danny character specifically, like that revelation that of, of the downside of her being an outsider all her life seemed very apparent right from the beginning of season eight. Yeah. Most definitely, man. And, Beautifully shot. Beautiful. Well, the, I mean, I, I have to say that just about every, I mean, every moment of Game of Thrones seems to be beautifully shot. Um, let's move on to, we're going to skip ahead uh, some, 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 some plot points, but let's move ahead to the eve of the Battle of the Long Night. There's an entire episode where... It's basically a string of conversations on the eve of the big battle. Um, I remember when you and I talked about this episode when it aired, I think we both felt like it was maybe one of the best episodes of Game of Thrones ever. Because you and I have lots of things in common. But one of the things we have in common is that sort of – that's – like that's a jam for you and I when a bunch of great characters are having a bunch of great conversations um, and, and just like sitting down and talking and that whole episode before the battle of, of, of the long night was a really great episode. And it was really great to revisit those conversations. Yeah. Because you always say, Man, I wish they had an episode where they just stopped for a second. We got to like hang out with the people, you know? Yeah. And yeah. there was so much tension in it, right? Yeah. You didn't yeah. quite know whether, and as uh, the way they built it is it does just kind of like start all of a sudden, but then we're going yeah. into the next episode where the battle actually happens, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And I like the way they did that too. But I think this also called back for me the el- the parlor elements, the parlor drama elements that they had in the earlier seasons. Right. And I think that in a way it was a um, a signal to the audience of, hey, we know how fast we're going. Yeah. We know we're 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 going at, but that's the way. Like when you're breaking into battle, that's what happens. You know what I mean? Like you're running into it. You're charging. This is the moment of reflection. And this was also when we had the Jamie and Brienne moment, right? Yeah, where he knights her, yeah. which is – and this was just so beautiful. It was a great time to rejoice with all these characters. And 
in many ways it was even though it's before a bit episodes before his goodbye it was a kind of a goodbye to some of these characters in retrospect you know the yeah, last time the, that we get to kind of see them comfortable and happy right 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 yes it, absolutely yeah, it, was, it was beautiful man and i just i can still remember that room and the fire and the people walking in and out and it, it just seemed like they must have also had a great time shooting that and yeah. just being together. It also that episode does make me wonder though what the differences are between payoff, emotional payoff, and fan service. I know the mild criticism that that episode did get at the time was that it was fan servicey, quote unquote. Um, I kind of feel like for certain people, whenever something happens that you've been waiting for, it could be called fan service. For me, I guess it's like a half glass full, half glass empty sort of situation because I look at that episode and I see payoff, payoff after payoff after payoff. Um, I don't necessarily see fan service. Um, what's your opinion about that? Like, where's that line for you when you're, not just with Game of Thrones, but just in general, between a payoff of something you've been waiting for, like the Arya Hound reunion in that episode, the first time they've talked in like three or four seasons, versus the fans uh, thinking of it as fan service. You know, that's a tough one for me because when I when people say fan service, I think it's got to be pretty egregious um, because all of from from the beginning of i mean spoken word stories people would include things that they knew their audience understood in order to connect with them that's the point of the story right <laughs> so i don't you know what i mean like i don't yeah. fan service to me is has to be egregious like an egregious cameo or a situation that is um I mean, like, I guess like Nikki and Paolo is like reverse fan service for lost fans where they like purposefully bury them alive because people were complaining, you know, like <laughs> that, that right. was funny. So right. I didn't feel that this was, I didn't get that at all from this. I didn't think it was fan servicey. I thought that each of the characters arrived at this situation organically through the story. Yeah. Nobody was thrust there just because right. um and they shouldn't have been there. You know? Yes. There's maybe certain times where Game of Thrones had done that. Maybe also because of the whole traveling time thing that they kind of just gave up on, you know, at a certain point. Yeah. Um you would accuse them of that, but in particular, I felt that this final season was kind of, you know, maybe the only thing that I could say was a little, that felt a little bit forced to me in the whole final season, um, was the, um, the battle of the brothers, um, where you had the hound acting in a way that I thought he had gotten past. That you know that whole yeah. mountain versus the hound thing. I what what did people call that? What was the thing that people called that again? Oh my gosh, 
I do. I don't. It's on the tip of my tongue. It's um. Oh, oh, it's Clegane Bowl. Yeah, Clegane. Okay. <laughs> Clegane Bowl. Yeah. I didn't understand it. The point of his character, I thought, was that he would come to empathize with his brother and see that they were both the victims of a horrible father and a horrible life, and because of their size in particular. They were forced, and I know something about that, being a six foot four, two hundred and fifty pound dude who like the football coaches would like salivate following me around school. Please play for and I'd be like, dude, I don't want to do that. Like I mean, they were forced into this life, you know? Um I never got the whole thing about him still being angry at his brother when his brother had been turned into a monster. Uh, yes. So that was a little maybe fan servicey, but then also I don't know. I just I I didn't think that. I thought it still made sense in the in terms of what was happening in the story. Like he was maybe protecting um, Arya in his in his own way, or protecting anyone that his brother might hurt again. Yeah. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, no, this episode definitely not. Yeah. I guess the last thing I wanted to say about this moment in the final season was um, the other kind of ongoing line of criticism that the show would often get throughout its entire run was about its treatment of female characters. And you and I and me and Matt and everyone who's sort of in, in the podcast Winterfell universe have talked a lot about this over the entire run of the show in lots of different situations. But I do want to, and I don't want to get into it again now because that's a whole podcast episode in and of itself. But I did want to point out that in this moment in in this episode where there's a bunch of conversations on the eve of a battle, that there are two kind of standout moments, which I consider to be odd, audaciously feminist. And one of them is that Arya chooses to have sex with a man of her choice at a moment of her choice, which to me is one of the most audaciously feminist things I've ever seen in any television show or movie where the woman gets to decide when she's going to lose her virginity, in this case, lose her virginity, and who she's going to lose it with. Now, that I'm not saying that's never happened before. It has, but it doesn't happen often. And, and in the context it, of, of this the, show, it yeah, really doesn't The happen. time period, what the, when it's right. the, the world so, this is, yeah. So the fact that this young woman got to have that sort of power over her body – in a sexual context, it's sort of amazing. The other thing, and maybe more important than that, is the Brienne moment that you and I talked about a few minutes, a few moments ago, where we talked about Jamie knighting her. The fact that she gets knighted and becomes a knight and becomes a sir um, is amazing. It's emotional. It's long in coming. Um, you know. Brienne has been on that arc since she was introduced in season two. Um, it's amazing. The performance is amazing. The The moment is amazing. Um, and it's also, once again, audaciously feminist. Yeah, I think that this show had a lot of strong female characters and a lot of moments that were and would will continue to be inspiring when you're viewing them. 
But for me, <clears throat> it's less on the screen and it's more so overall, I think, was when you look at the kind of the show overall when it comes to stuff like that. It was kind of their hiring practices, right? Um, who they got involved with the show and how the scripts or storylines were who they were filtered through. So I think that's a, it, that is, that's a, that's kind of a tough element of the show. And also I don't know that I um, can right now kind of go through and remember everything to speak on it properly, completely properly. Um, but those moments you describe, and even are you taking out the night King? You know, yeah. and ending yeah. up being a badass explorer of the freaking world. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. The continuer of the story, you know, um, Sansa becoming the queen of the north. Yeah. Which is kind of forgotten. And when I rewatched the finale, I was like, yeah, that's right. Yeah. She had made that decision before Bran was even named king. And yep. that's why yeah. she was upset. I'd never yeah. picked up on that before. I made a new realization. I watched her throughout that whole conversation. I realized, oh, I see. She doesn't want, she's kind of upset they picked Bran because she doesn't want to diss her brother because she had already decided that she was queen of the North. Yeah. Um, that you're right. There's, there are a lot of um, things to be proud of, but I think that Game of Thrones, like, Hollywood and like our society in general is going through a reckoning of realizing it's not just about representation on screen or like statistically how many actors of this color or blah, blah, blah. It's about the people who are making the decisions, right? About yeah. what gets created and yeah. who sits in that writer's room. Like when Damon Lindelof set out to make Watchmen, he specifically hired women and people of color because that's yeah. what the show was about. So he didn't just, you know, Oh, but I still have to get my five buddies that I wrote with on the Harvard lampoon in. <laughs> you know, like right. <laughs> He actually went and hired people. He had, he didn't know when he had to trust someone else. Yeah. Um, and, and brought them in. And that's what Dan and Dave didn't do. And, um, I mean, like, I don't know these guys personally and, and, I, I I just think that it, it could you don't know why that happened too. It could have been HBO had certain caps on who they're allowed to hire. You know, it's yeah. like um, when people complain about NFL coaches and they don't realize that in order to be an NFL coach, you have to first be hired by the league and approved to be a head coach. Then you can be hired as a head. People forget about that, so it's not always. Um, the showrunners that are in charge, but you're right. Those moments were very inspiring. And I like the one you point out with Arya. Um, and yeah, she doesn't all of a sudden wake up the next day and have a second, uh, you know, thought and then decide she wants to get married. Right. <laughs> right. She's like, okay, I've done that. I can check that off my list. Yeah. She, yeah, yeah. she doesn't like think about it and go to Sansa and they have a comp, right? It's not oh, it's not sentimental exactly. at all, really. Yeah, yeah. She's just she was banging it out, man. She's like, I may <laughs> die tomorrow, and I want to know what it feels like for you know for for that to happen to me, yeah, for me to have that kind ass. of experience. Um, 
Okay, so the next moment of, is, of course, the Battle of the Long Night. And I specifically really just want to talk about kind of the lightning rod aspects of that episode when it aired. What do we think of it now uh, upon reflection? Um, I had a chance to rewatch it again a few days ago. But kind of the idea of, like, the aesthetic of darkness, I feel like Sapochnik made a choice that he wanted to try to – Film an epi- film a battle where it, at nighttime, where the night was a was its own character, and he wanted to bring as much realism as he could to the concept of what would it be like if a bunch of people were fighting at night, um, and 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 what are the pros of that, and what are all the cons of that? Which there are a lot of cons to, of course, fighting at night. Um, and I ultimately think it's a brilliant technical achievement of an episode. I know there's lots of people who disagree with me about that. And I'm just wondering now that you've had 14 months to think about that episode, wh- wh- what do you think of now when you think about that sequence? Well, I had to watch some of this, man. Um, I knew we were going to be talking about it. And plus, I loved it. Um, yeah. It's so it's uh it's difficult i should have went i wanted to go into the other room and like watch it on a different tv because i still it's the same tv that i had when i watched it a year ago yeah. uh, which i didn't do but um i was not bothered by the darkness the first time i just didn't think it was a big issue and i wasn't bothered this time i thought it added to my total confusion. I think the first time I watched that episode, that was one of the most, that was a singular moment in my TV watching history. I mean, I felt dazed, confused, scared, anxious. Um, I loved it and I love it again. I think it's wonderful and when that person who I was speaking of said something about the Battle of Winterfell, I disagreed with them on that point too. And I said, <laughs> I disagree. I think they did this amazing. I mean, come on. I mean, the yeah, fires going out and off, the freaking from, I yeah. mean, everything, the intro, walking along, the tout. It, it, was, it was great, dude. I, this is what I'm saying. It's like, I still, I am, I'm happy that we enjoyed this the first time, Ken, <laughs> because. Well, and, um, and, and I picked up on the thing I picked up on when I rewatched it a few days ago is in the midst of all this technical achievement and grandeur, which I feel like it's full of it, full of that. There's also still all these great subtle and wonderful character beats and yes, relationship yep. beats. Like the episode opens with someone wringing their hands and you come to find out that Sam and it, because the camera pans up, but the opening shot of the episode is someone wringing their hands in fear and anxiety. Oh, yeah, I know. And that's just, just an amazing way to start the episode. It, it's everything you just said. It is. It's tense. It's, it's confusing. You're, it's disorienting. Everything that it should be, and it's, it's all those things on purpose. Um, so, yeah, I agree. I loved it at the time. I still love it. I possibly love it more 
I, I, I think I loved it more when I watched it a few days ago than even when I watched it originally. Um, but yeah, there's all these great, great character beats. That moment between Sansa and Tyrion in the, in, in the crypt. Um, the moment where the hound's about to give up, but then he gets a second win because he sees Arya's in danger. Um, oh, there's so, man. there's so many moments. Her going that through just, that library. Yeah. Know. It's like a horror movie. Yeah. Come on. That's what I'm saying. This was great. great. This was really yeah. edge of your, if you, if you don't have expectations for something, for it being something it never was going to be right. Then yeah. this is fantastic. Um, the only, there's only, the only part for me, just because, you know, we're breaking things down on a podcast, of course. I still found the John and the dragon part a little clunky, like as far as, uh, just in pacing and blocking of what was happening, where, yeah, you know, and Though I came to see that as kind of an interesting metaphor, almost like a Don Quixote type of thing, you know, he was yeah. doing this while his sister's getting the actual job done, right. um, but also <laughs> right. teamwork, right? Yeah. Teamwork makes the dream work. And if his whole job was basically to be a decoy in a sense, that yeah. is kind of cool. Well, the other thing I picked up on is that. Part of the reason why he was up in the sky and acting like a chicken without a head is because Danny was not following the plan. I really picked up on that ah, this last week. True. Good point. Because the, the original plan that they talked about in the episode before around the battle table was that Danny and John were going to both keep the dragons right on the fence by the godswood and wait for the Night King to come to Bran. That was the plan. That was always the plan. But Daenerys got emotional when she saw all the Dothraki go out in the opening moments of the battle. And she could not abide it. And she got on her dragon and she took off. And that was... And that was not the plan. And so John was forced to go up into the sky with her because she wasn't following the plan, which, which you're right. It's so brilliant that you just said that, by the way, because that was the other thing I thought. I thought foreshadowing this is, she cannot control her emotions. They're boiling over and she's making reckless decisions because of it. And you're right. It's absolute foreshadowing for what's going to happen later in in just a few episodes. You're right about so. that part. Um, but even uh, – but I was also um, – that's that's good. I had for you're, – you're totally right about that. And it's hard to think um, the Danny thing, which we're going to talk about next. I guess I'll yeah. save that for Danny. But to the okay. part when he is fighting um, the ice dragon and are you – like towards the end – is what I was talking about too, after he's already down on the ground. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, that part was still a little, I just think, you know, it was a little hard. I could, basically what I'm saying is the pacing was brilliant until I felt like that part was a little off cause it's John. But then That's when true. you think about that, they put him in that position. I think it's meant to make you kind of question and be like, isn't he supposed to be the hero here? Right. Like you expect right. a certain thing out of it. Yeah. Um, yeah, so yeah. I guess I kind of actually, 
enjoyed a little bit that unease that it gave me. Um, but yeah, that whole thing was cool. I mean, I will say that there still is, and especially after uh, really taking in and remembering that the whole damn thing ends the way it began with the shot out past the wall, you know, of the woods yeah. Yeah. and John walking off into the distance that even though Arya took out the Night King here, there was a sense of loss for me that there was not more of an exploration or connection, really, not even an exploration, but a connection between um, the Night King and John, or the Night King being a Stark, or do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I still I felt that there was a loss there, and I will forever write that up to kind of the pacing, the number of episodes and the direction that they chose. Yeah. But I think in my own like head canon, my own fan invention, that's not the last we'll see of these demons. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, that's a really great thought. I, I love that. Um, and I agree with you about, about the pacing of the story of the narrative, as far as like the night King and, and John and, and that whole thing. And, and, and the way he went out, I guess my frustration with that has been, if you're going to do, because obviously the plan was to create a faux big bad, IE the night King, right? Because the real big bad was the secret that they'd been keeping all these years. The real big bad was Daenerys. Yeah. See, um, I still, I yearned for her becoming the Night Queen and then right, uniting right. that storyline together. Yes. Yeah. So, or, or keep it the way it was, but just have, be able to have a few more episodes to flesh that out a yeah. little bit more. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and you're right. I still feel the tension of that frustration as well. But speaking of Daenerys, let's go right to that. Um, you know, this is probably the thing that motivates people to still send angry tweets out to this day. 100%. Probably the that this is the prime motivator for why people still send angry tweets out about game of Thrones season eight is this moment. Um, and it's, it's, it's the Danny turn. I'll just call it the Danny turn. Um, I, um, I have Danny boy, a boy, the bells, the bells <laughs> are ringing <laughs> and the bells were ringing actually. Yes, yeah. <laughs> and she ignored them. Um, I have, um, I, I guess I'll say I have a complicated reaction to it, but I mainly have a positive reaction to it intellectually. I like the idea on paper that someone who was an outsider was so scarred emotionally and psychologically that at the end of the day, they couldn't rise above their own limited worldview. And at the end of the day, they're, they're kind of messianic, um, a kind of godlike view of the world ended up inverting back into herself. And she just couldn't, she, she couldn't function um, in a, in a way that was positive um, for everyone else. Um, so I kind of like that idea on paper. 
And I mainly like the execution, but I understand that it was clunky, that it was to some degree rushed, even though, even though I will say that if you go back and look at pivotal episodes from seasons one, two, three, four, you can see a little bit of that there. Like if you go back and watch key moments from her storyline. I, I, um, yeah, Ken, this is it. I mean, man, if there's one thing that had more people unfollow the podcast Winterfell Twitter account um, or get mad at me in particular as the person posting tweets on that particular account during uh, season eight, which is ma- one of the ra- main reasons I'm not on Twitter anymore, which is Game of Thrones. <laughs> I just tell you, I'm not lying. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's like, you know whatever our our president and game of thrones top two reasons why i'm off twitter um <laughs> but uh it, it, this is a tough one it really yeah. is because i really empathize with those women in particular who uh adopted like the Khaleesi call out or you know anything like that especially when it's just it's a real tough one and I really feel like freaking dissertations could be written about this and right. about the real world and the fake world and how when you use real world um uh I don't I don't know what you would call it ethics or morals and you transpose them to a fantasy world or television show, there's a danger. And the danger is that for me, there is absolutely no doubt that the show and the books communicate that part of Danny's problem is literally her bloodline. Yes. Yes. So we live in a country and a world in which it is the antithesis of good to point out that someone acts in a certain way because of their skin, color of skin, bloodline, even to speak like that is not right because it isn't right. It doesn't work that way in the real world. We're not in a magical world. In this magical world, her family literally genetically modified themselves with dragon blood through magic Right. So she is in a certain way bound by that. So you have this show and the books kind of asking this nature versus nurture question, but also overriding it with magic. Yeah. So it's really a tough one to take, but outside of those, that discussion, I think that they did a very good job of building this up with her. Um, yeah. You saw the way she had struggled with her use of power and the dragons throughout. Yeah. You know, as yep. Tyrion mentions in the final episode, um, was it a quick turn? Yes. Why did it fail so many people? In my opinion, because of its reliance on her love for John. Yes. That oh, good point. Killed it. Yeah, good point. Good point. If they had made that less of a story, for instance, if she had spurned him early on and not fallen so deeply in love with him, 
because they really kind of made it out. And even in the last episode, I'm watching it. And the part that I just was hard to take is how quickly they fell in love with each other. Yeah. Even though, again, it's a TV show and they're compressing time. And hey, gosh, man, hey, you know, I came home from my first wife with my date and, and, and told everybody I'm marrying this lady. And I did. You know what I'm saying? So it <laughs> yeah, happens. Yeah. yeah, it does happen. Love at first sight happens. So, um, but within the context of this show, which is so political and, and has so much machinations, it see, it was just, they needed a little more, whether it was time, whether it was not even time, because they had a lot of hours, which is they needed to write it differently or explore that a little bit more. Well, I think your point about tying it so much to her relationship with John is a great point. And it's an important point because I think it made it seem like him dumping her is why she turned. Yeah. Thank you, Ken. That's the simple terms. Like she was a woman scorned. That's and, what, and, yeah. And that's yeah. not right. And that's not what I took from it, but I can no. see now, I will admit yeah, one I thing too. I can see now is why people were upset about that a little bit more. Yeah. I think I was maybe attached to the kind of star fuckery, excuse my French, or fandom that gets, yeah. you know, to the character rather than the story holistically. Now, a year later, and when I was thinking about it, and I was watching the finale, and I was and other parts with her and John, the part by the waterfall and all that, um, I was kind of like, "Yeah, they didn't really pull this off." You know, I don't know if it was chemistry between the actors, or it was just they were trying to make a love. It 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 did come off a little Padme Anakin to me. It did, right? Yeah. There's some really that that sequence in the first episode where they fly um, dragons together, where John flies for the first time, and then they have like a little conversation mm -hmm. after the dragons land. That was a really awkward, awkward conversation, not written, but just th between the two actors, there just didn't seem to be a whole lot of chemistry in that scene. But also to take your point, just sort of in general, yeah. But um, yeah, it's but, good to look back at it, right? Because um, I have to admit my own biases um, mm. and biases. <laughs> <laughs> now someone's biased about the way I said bias. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, because when it first went down and I'm watching it and I can remember even myself saying, hey, they fell in love. People fall in love. But I admit now, I think I was wrong about that. I think that this could have been handled and written better um or de-emphasized. Yeah. Um especially in her story because she there were hints of it. Yeah. Um her ignoring him at certain times, shutting him out um even before um he kind of spurned her, you know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Where she was doing her own shit anyway. And to me, I will think, and again, my headcanon, that the reason why Danny turned had more to do with her magical blood 
the experiences that she had, the world she lived in. And overall, it's just basically a lesson about um, I just finished playing the game The Last of Us Part Two. I don't have you ever played these games, Ken? I haven't, but I've heard a lot okay. about them. This game is absolutely incredible. No yeah. spoilers, but a lot of it is about letting anger, fear, dominance take over, revenge take over, and yeah. and what you become. And I think that if they had gone more leaned more into Maybe the loss of Masande, yeah, right? the yeah, loss yeah. of her dragons, and or less the loss of Jora, yeah, Jora. Thank you, and yeah. less of the love for John. Yeah, we could have done without the waterfall, dragony Disney scene, and done with more so her in a bout of depression. Or if they had planted a few more seeds in seasons three, four, and five. True. Um, you know the the thing I thought when when I was thinking about this was it isn't just nature, it's also nurture because for the first eighteen years of her life, the only person that she was around all the time oh, was her brother who raped her who right yeah we think. I, I mean she she had his voice in her ear for the first eighteen years of her life, and even though she was a very different person than her brother. She still that was still the nurture. That's a great point. They could have done something to bring us back to that, you know? Right. Right. Um, like, like like she had more Viserys in her than she realized. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And I think the reason why I'm hip to this too is because I am a huge fan of um the last book he did, which I'm the the name all the dragon names. I forget, you know, the whole tale of the Targaryens. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is what is becoming Blood Moon or whatever, They're the new TV show that we'll be podcasting on whenever it comes out. <laughs> right. Um, which I think is really cool. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah. And I think that maybe upon watching that, people will then watch Game of Thrones. And when they, if they start with that first, I think you're going to yeah. have a little Darth Vader prequels thing going on here in reverse, which is that I, we think, oh, Danny is this, oh, oh, we see how it started right with her brother. And then, but then she becomes the evil at the end. And we're like, oh, damn. But then once we watch the story of her whole family, we're going to be like, as soon as she shows up on screen, you're going to be like, oh shit, there's the bad guy. Yeah. Because yep. her family was crazy. Right. And she, it's not like she was shielded from her entire family. All She was raised by a brother who was obviously mentally and emotionally unstable. Yes. He, um, was, he was like so many of the people we're going to meet in this right. new show, obsessed by his lineage yeah. and his power. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And you have to think on some level, even though temperamentally, personality-wise, emotionally, she's a different person than her brother, some of that still seeped in. Yeah. And it's magic. And it's also magic. <laughs> That's the thing, right? Okay. Like, we can have all these kind of comparative discussions about what's represented on a show, but Game yeah. of Thrones is not The Wire, and even The Wire is not real life, you know? Right. Um, Absolutely. It's still Absolutely. a representation. It's it's an allegory. And I think that 
maybe in the show that allegory is kind of, you know, as uh, thinking about Watchmen again, about how they talked about like handing down pain through your DNA, you know? Um, And in a sense, I think the turn was too quick as we talked about the part with John, but when you see her standing up there with the dragon wings and giving the speech, yes, it is, it works. Well, that's what I was just about to say. I was about to say, regardless of what quibbles or issues you may have with the material itself, Amelia Clark's performance and what she was able to do with the material they gave her was consistently amazing. Yeah, and that great. and that speech she gave at the end, I was thinking, boy, that's quite a trick of acting because we've seen her give that speech a million times through the course of the show. Mm-hmm. And she just altered it ever so slightly. And then suddenly it seemed like a tyrannical evil speech. And that made you realize how, how thin that edge was the entire time. Exactly. And, and, and again, Many, many people told her that many people pulled her aside, confronted her or had conversations behind her back or off to the side where they were worried about her power. That's the reason why Robert tried to get her killed to begin with. Exactly. Exactly. He was right. (laughs) Right? Like (laughs) he knew those fucking Targaryens. Were no good. He knew right. it. He the only a, good Targaryen is a dead Targaryen. Yes, he was a drunk bastard. But you know what? He was right. He yeah. and it was the magic. It was the blood. It was whatever, um, whatever ancient deal, right? That her ancestors had made. And from my understanding of reading that dragon book, it was literally like you know. They mixed their DNA. It was genetically altered themselves to have this connection to the dragon. Um, yeah. I guess that's the same reason why Dra- Dragon doesn't burn John up and chooses the throne instead um, in the finale. But yeah, you're, you the way you introduce this is really resonant, Ken, which is this is the point. When yeah, this we, is it. When we look back – and people complain about the show. This is the major thing they complain about. And also, as we look forward to the books, um, and I wanted to ask you, when the books come out, I'd lo- I love. I want to do a podcast series with you where you read the books and then we talk about it because yeah. I do not think I'm going to read all these books. I, I have to resign myself. Me, I've listened to a bunch on audio book, but I guess, I don't know. It's really not the same of listening to it over and over again or reading it or really knowing it as well as you do. Yeah. Um, and I'd love to talk about when they come out, the differences and stuff, but will George, will this happen in the books as I think the biggest question on everyone's minds? Am I right about that? That is the biggest question um, because, um, you know, as far as the books go, we're really looking at the end of season five, which seems like such a long time ago. As That's when the written material, adaptable material ended was the end of season five, which with the death of Jon Snow, um, 
Sansa going off with Littlefinger, um, uh, uh, becoming dark Sansa. Um, yeah, that's really the end of the written material that Dave and Dan had to adapt. Um, and that was a long time ago, narratively speaking. Um, so with the new book, um, you know, like when the new book starts, Jon Snow is dead. Um, if, if you can believe it. So, um, (laughs) that's a way back machine. Yeah, that is a way back machine. So, oh, and, and Danny just got to Marine and, you know, she's just figuring out like she's in the middle of that Marine storyline in the book. So, um, yeah, so she's a billion miles away from still even landing on Westeros. So, um, it'll be really interesting to see uh, what uh, George does. Um, my feeling is that we're going to end up in the same place, but we're going to get there by radically different means. That's my feeling of what George is probably going to do, is that we'll still ultimately end up in the same place, but that we'll get there in such a radically different way that it may feel different once we get to that ending. Mm. And that's that's okay. Yeah, that um, is okay. I, and yeah. I, I hope – I know that's something really hard for Twitter and the world to understand, which is that something could actually end the same way but get there differently and be brilliant. Yeah. Um, but I hope people give the time and energy to that. I know I will if I find out – you know, if years from now you're like Axel – the same thing happens. I'm not going to be like, Dan and Dave were right. I'll probably think it probably happened in a much different way. Um, and it really is all about the journey, you know? So well, also, I, I want to read a story where, I mean, I already, in, I, I already mostly enjoyed it in the, tele, in the television show. But I really want to see George's fleshed out version of the story where – a character who thinks they're the hero are really just the hero of their own story in their mind increasingly. And that Mm. in in the outside of their mind, they're increasingly becoming the bad guy and they don't know it. That's an interesting story to tell. And it's 10 times more interesting if that character is a female. Yeah, it is. Because, because I feel like there's already been versions of that story told where that character was a man who thought that he was a hero, but really just a hero in his own mind. Like to some degree, I mean, I don't want to compare Daenerys and Hannibal Lecter because they're not the same people at all. But Hannibal Lecter is the, is the hero in his own story. Um, and that, but to the outside world, he's a vicious, horrible serial killer, and rightly so, he is. But and so, I'm not trying to really compare the two of them, but I'm just stating that in the past, that kind of story has been told with a male character. It'll be interesting to see how George comes up with this, not only his version of this story, but also that it's a woman at the center of this story, not a man. I think that's really interesting. Yeah. And I, and I think what he'll have this space to create is maybe more of a, maybe a longer John versus Danny thing. That was one of my um, 
a regret, or I guess in my my own head, that they didn't have the opportunity. To, it happened so fast um, between the conversation with him and Tyrion and his decision. And it has to be fast because she's basically saying, I'm going to go take over the whole world now. So he has to do it. Right. It makes total sense. But I think knowing how expansive the books are, I would only guess that what we would really get is a John marshalling of forces, a Danny marshalling of forces and them kind of that being the final battle really. Um, and having it be something larger with more political machinations and, you know, instead of just having Yara say, but I pledge to Danny, we'd actually have her trying to stab John in the back militarily or something, you know? Yeah. Um, well, so. the other thing he could do potentially is flesh out the fact that maybe they were confusing love for a familiar pull. Oh, yeah. I like that too to in, introduce their love to it too. Um, yeah, because because remember when Drogon first met John, the, the, there was tension like is he going to bite him and then he smelled John's hand and then he was okay with John. What if George is able to successfully flesh out that same concept but between Danny and John, like maybe they don't truly love each other. They just think they do because of the familiar pull that they feel towards each other. And also because it fulfills some sort of, you know, history, you know, right. it, it right. falls in line with the power of the throne itself yeah, and their families and their bloodline, which I think um, is something that, uh, is ultimately important to this show. And like I said, I think that this new show coming out, the more I think about it, and I and I mention, of course, because I know now that they're casting some leads for it, um, I think will really help put this particular issue into a better framework for people who are entering into the whole Game of Thrones world and we yeah. must always remember in the, in our modern times far more people will probably like watch the prequel first <laughs> you know like right people are just it's the new thing and then they'll be like oh there's a mo- there was one before this what's it called game of thrones oh re- oh that was this oh okay Right. You know, um, and I, I think that, you know, you'll have millions of people 20 years from now, however many different stories they'll tell, it will kind of reframe the original, uh, as happens with Star Wars, especially. So yeah. I think that it's kind of, I'm, I was kind of annoyed that they didn't go with the long night, but the more I think about it, it was probably it was a better choice to go with this blood moon and the story of the war the you know what the dance of the dragons yeah yeah the targaryen civil yeah, war yeah the targaryen yeah. because it is so central to understanding really how this story ended exactly and it sort of sets up this story really to completely 100 yeah, yeah. percentile it really works more because in the end game of thrones was really about Danny and John and Bran 
and Sansa and Arya and Theon and those people, um, you know, then it was the Night King. Right. Right. And, right. and like they're that type of ancestors. So I think kind of putting it and I guess in particular, really what the story really came about was Danny. So settling on that, I think is interesting. And also, you know what? Dragons are fucking cool. <laughs> they are. Cool. And, and, and with this show, we'll get to see, you know, dragon on dragon action. Um, like, I mean, as far as warfare, not necessarily sex. <laughs> But maybe we'll see dragon sex too. That would be awesome. Dude, we better see some hot dragon on dragon action, man. Because I heard their wieners are like 50 feet long, bro. Oh, that's great. It's a fire wiener. That's what a dragon has. Oh, that's great. Um, Oh, man. This is great. This is so great, Ken. And you know what? We have been going for like almost an hour, 15, hour and a half. And we're about halfway through what we wanted to talk about, which means we're probably only a quarter of a way through. Uh, (laughs) That's right. So um, we have decided, uh, audience, that we're going to meet back in a month. We're going to give it a little time. I'm only able to really do dedicate to do like one great show a week now because, you know, I'm a stay at home dad. My wife's working here. I got the kid, um, Corona and all that. He can't really go outside, play with his friends all day. Um, so Ken and I are going to meet back in a month and, uh, I'm going to be doing some other shows over on daily DVR, which this will be released to. And we're going to get into Tyrion. We're going to get into Jamie battle of King's landing, our final thoughts. We'll get into all types of stuff. It'll give me a time, a little bit of time to go back and watch some more stuff. But also, please email us podcastwinterfell at gmail dot com. Um, you can also go to the website uh, dvrpodcast.com. dot com. Hit us up on Twitter, Facebook, any type of comments. Maybe we can also integrate some um, feedback from you all as well into what we've been talking about today and what your thoughts are a year later. I'd love to hear from that. Anything else you want to say before we say adieu for today, Ken? No, just to echo your thoughts about the feedback, that would be great. Um, it's as, as usual, per usual, it's a joy talking to you. It's always a joy talking about Game of Thrones. So I've had a lot of fun and I look forward to uh, talking more about the final season and, and, and and the last part of the final season. So look forward to that. Yeah, Thanks man. for the opportunity. Of course, Ken. And this is exciting. Now we get to we get to have another something to look forward to, put a little bit more uh podcast winterfells up there. And yeah, I'm gonna go back and watch some more stuff and give me some more time to think about it and talk about it. But gosh, you know, I'm glad to be talking about Game of Thrones. I think that when it initially ended, it was so hectic. I had such a positive time with you and with the podcast, Um, but there was a lot of negativity, and I feel like it's good to have a little distance, and especially with what's going on in the world today. um, How would everybody feel if Game of Thrones was on now? You know what? You'd love it because it'd give you something to do. Right. <laughs> That's right. Right. Let's be appreciative. All right. Well, Ken, I love you, man. Thank you for being here. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, check us out. Please send us an email. Check the show notes. 
you know, dvrpodcast at gmail.com, podcastwinterfell at gmail. I'd love to hear other people's thoughts, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Peace out.